0: The ortho pac hosted by sam dyer welcome to the ortho pac where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician i invite you to sit back and relax as i attempt to fill in the gaps between education current events and real world practice welcome back dr alex bitzer dr bitzer is with us today to discuss mdi and throwing athletes so, I wanted to talk a little bit about the diagnosis and treatments of MDI, multi directional instability, in throwing athletes. When you first see a patient and you suspect this, what are some points in the history and exam that make you think of this versus unidirectional instability or even a rotator cuff tear?
1: One of the things about MDI or multi directional instability is that it's a uh fairly hard diagnosis to truly make because there's a lot of subtleties in the uh, patient exam and the history when they come into the office. The term was first really described by Dr. Near in 1980 as a way to explain a patient that has instability in at least two different directions with primarily one of them being at least in the inferior direction. So it is a little bit tricky, but Typically, the patients that have MDI that uh, we see in the office are going to be on the younger side of the, the age spectrum. It's usually folks that are in their teens or uh, early sort of adulthood. Typically, they'll present with an insidious onset of shoulder pain. And um, a lot of these patients will say that they've either had just some changes in in their training regimen if they're an athlete, especially an overhead throwing athlete, Or that there's been an increase in how many games they've had to play or how much they've had to throw, et cetera. Typically, there isn't a large traumatic event. Usually if it's one traumatic event, you know, my shoulder was perfect. I never had any issues. I had this injury. It came out of place. And ever since then, it hasn't felt the same. That's a little bit different. That's when you start thinking more of the unidirectional, traumatic unidirectional Bankart lesion that requires surgery, or some people call that tub's. And then finally, when you're thinking of rotator cuff pathology, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but I think folks with rotator cuff pathology are a little bit older, um, sort of middle-aged patients to older patients. And so usually that's more of the demographic that will have a true rotator cuff tear that will be symptomatic. Although many of these MDI patients will have tendonitis of the rotator cuff because of some dyskinesis on their shoulder girdle, which again, we'll, we'll get into a little bit later. The other big thing to think about for MDI patients is general ligamentous laxity. So typically these patients will be fairly lax compared to someone with just a rotator cuff tear or someone with tubs that just has a traumatic sort of labral tear and possibly a bony lesion. Typically, these patients will have multiple occurrences of shoulder pain or subluxation events. It won't just be one event. Which again, goes more with the traumatic unidirectional uh, instability pattern. Finally, setting of the injury is important, and then also when the complaints happen, a lot of p- these patients with MDI will complain of symptoms, whether it's instability, frank dislocation, subluxations, or pain, even with daily activities. So, aside from just their sport, they'll also say. That when they're doing things around the house and they're doing activities of daily living, that they'll have some degree of discomfort. So that's another thing that tips you off that this might be an MDI thing when it's not just in sport, but also in doing various things. And again, subtle complaints, but nonetheless symptomatic for the patient and what they experience in their shoulder.
0: So the typical, I visualize a baseball pitcher who plays for their school and they also do travel ball and they're throwing all the time. A younger person, that's kind of the person I think about, are there any red flags? Are there any things that you have to think about, like, you know, could this be neck or something else? I, I know it's unlike the rotator cuff, like you said, in a younger person, but is there anything else that we need to think about?
1: I think the big red flags when it comes to generalized laxity and MDI patients that I think a lot of people worry about, especially when the conversation comes to surgery versus continued non-operative management, are patients that have certain red flags like very stoic patients that are saying that they have all these issues with their shoulder, but when you examine them, aren't really responding to anything and are just, you know, kind of saying, well, yeah, that's not good, that that doesn't feel good, but are just very stoic during the uh, the examination process. The other patient I think a lot of folks worry about is, of course, the voluntary dislocator. And sometimes there are patients, in fact, I've had the experience of dealing with a patient who was going through a stressful situation at home. They were in their teens and they are dislocating every single day uh, posteriorly and would go to the ER and would get multiple calls. And it was, it was very difficult to treat. Eventually I ended up going to the operating room. And when the patient went to sleep, it was obvious that the shoulder could go in and out very, very easily, and that the patient would does have enough control to self-reduce and self-dislocate. So Those are the big sort of red flags when it comes to multidirectional instability in patients with generalized ligamentous laxity. Other red flags to think about in a throwing athlete, since you brought them up, is that even though it's uncommon to have rotator cuff pathology when you're young, you certainly can get internal impingement that is a consequence of GERD when you have increased external rotation and you have decreased internal rotation whether it's truly from having your humeral head come too far back and impinging on the inferior articular side of your infraspinatus, which again is that internal impingement, or whether it's just dyskinesis from not having a stable scapula and then therefore having your shoulder girdle not uh, the mechanics be off and that causing impingement. So we're on the rotator cuff. Certainly those things can occur and so those are things to look out for. In fact, many people think that a lot of the pain generator in multidirectional instability isn't so much the instability or the subluxation, especially in folks with generalized ligamentous laxity, but more so this impingement due to dyskinesis on the rotator cuff. And if you fix that, which primarily is focusing on the scapula, then you can fix uh, the impingement, which will therefore fix the, uh, the symptoms.
0: Let's talk a little bit about physical exam. I think most people know about an apprehension sign, but are there specifics or are there tests that you can do that help you differentiate between, say, MDI, unidirectional rotator cuff?
1: If you see a patient in clinic and they are leaning more towards what sounds like unidirectional instability, then typically you can, just from the history, you can get an idea of what direction they might have dislocated. And of course, the most common is anteriorly with posteriorly being somewhat rare. And inferior also, you know, in uh, the erecta being somewhat uncommon as well, although I've seen all three, and I've actually seen luxiato erecta quite a few times, surprisingly, even though it's not very well documented in the literature. If you're thinking of acute traumatic lesion of the labrum due to a traumatic event, then certainly an apprehension sign, again, most common will be anterior. So you think of bringing the patient up into abduction at 90 degrees and externally rotating them towards 90 degrees, many times even abducting them will start making them feel somewhat symptomatic. And then if they're externally rotating, then certainly they will start feeling as if, you know, uncomfortable that something bad's going to happen. And typically if you provide, you know, a posterior uh, force to direct the humeral head back towards the glenoid and center it, then most of them will say, oh, that feels much better. And then as you slowly, again, let off that pressure, they'll say, oh, this doesn't feel good. So that's for, you know, the anterior side. For the posterior side, usually a posterior load and shift will generate pain. Most, most people with labral lesions or bony lesions of the posterior aspect of the glenoid will report more pain than actual instability. And so, again, most folks, as you internally rotate the arm at 90 degrees of abduction and, again, provide a posterior force, you can test the labrum at different angles whether you're further abducting the arm more or you're adducting it more to see where that lesion might be along the posterior labrum. So that's sort of the tub side of things. In terms of MDI, really one of the big things to look for again and I harp on it pretty often is to look at the general laxity of the patient. This is when looking at bite scores are important. So you want to look at their whole body, you want to look at their knees, their elbows, their small finger, how much they hyperextend. A lot of these patients with MDI will have generalized ligamentous laxity and knowing that is important because you want to sort of differentiate what is general increased laxity, which is just functional, especially for certain athletes like throwing athletes or swimmers. And so you want to sort of figure out what's normal, but you also don't want to miss a lesion that might have become symptomatic in an otherwise normal shoulder that just has generalized ligamentous laxity. The other thing to look at in someone with MDI is at the scapula. Again, it's important and crucial that these patients that have an element of MDI be able to stabilize their scapula as they're bringing their arm in different ranges of motion. Typically, the scapula in someone with MDI will be protracted. And so making sure that they're able to retract their scapula is important. You also want to look for things like medial or lateral winging. You want to rule out any neurological components that might be part of the exam, whether it might be coming from their neck or whether they um, have some sort of thoracic outlet syndrome. Ruling out all those things is important. If you go down that pathway, you can follow it appropriately. If you do think that maybe there's something coming from the neck or there's a thoracic outlet syndrome, or maybe there's a, um, a nerve that isn't working appropriately. And then finally, there are certain tests that are going to be really important to look at uh, whether the ligamentous laxity is actually pathologic. And one of those is the Gage exam where you... Abduct the arm, and if you can go beyond 105 degrees, typically that's indicative of too much laxity, especially in the inferior capsule, and that might be pretty helpful and diagnostic for MDI. The other thing that it's important is to do a a sulcus sign exam, where the arm is just adducted, and you basically just provide manual traction to the the humerus. And uh, typically, if you get a few centimeters of a sulcus sign, where you get a good space between the humeral head and the acromion, then you can say, well, there's might be an element of MDI. And then finally, the big one also is with the arm adducted and external rotating the arm to at least 90 degrees. If you can get to 90 degrees or beyond that, typically that's indicative that the rotator interval is too lax because it's allowing you to do that because it should tighten up before you get to that extreme 90 degrees of extra rotation with the arm adducted. And again, that's a, a little bit indicative that uh, MDI may be, might be going on. And then finally, testing the rotator cuff is uh, imperative, but importantly... And this is something that a lot of people miss sometimes is that you have to test the rotator cuff while you are also stabilizing the scapula. Because, again, a lot of these patients will have a protracted scapula. They're trying to fire their cuff, and it's just not going to fire well. The dynamics are off. And so you have to make sure the scapula is in an appropriate position. And sometimes what helps with this is laying the patient down supine. And then that will actually help stabilize the scapula sum. And then you can test the rotator cuff muscles, whether it's a Whipple exam, an empty can, Job's test, extra rotation strength, belly press, all different things that we test the rotator cuff for.
0: That's great information in the different exams. There's so many different shoulder exams to identify different problems. Let's talk about diagnostic modalities. What are your routine x ray views you get? And do you change that when you're suspicious of MDI? And then I'm pretty positive an MRI comes into play. And if we go back to our discussion last week about FAI with a hip, you talked about a T3 magnet as opposed to an MRA. I didn't really know if that might be an option for this issue for shoulder labral tears as well, or do you still do MRAs? Just hoping you could give us your algorithms for how you approach workup.
1: When working up these patients, it's imperative to get a good shoulder series. And so typically that will include an AP of the shoulder, both an internal and external rotation, a gracie view looking right down the glenohumeral joint, a scapular Y, and as well as an axillary. Typically in patients with MDI, the majority of the bony films will be fairly normal unless there's been frequent dislocation events, either anteriorly or posteriorly, uh, which have caused some sort of glenoid erosion or changes in the morphology. The other thing one can also look at and and is imperative to uh, evaluate is to look for any dysplasia. Because certainly if you have someone with a dysplastic glenoid that is making them prone to subluxation, dislocation events, that's important to know when trying to counsel the patient on whether non-operative management is a way to go or if surgical management is something that they require. So really, kind of like an FAI that we had discussed last week, these, these x-ray films are really a good way to establish the foundation of the shoulder girdle, make sure that, that there aren't any large red flags within the foundation of the glenoid or the humeral head. I talked a little bit about dysplasia on the glenoid side. On the humeral side, of course, it would be looking for either a hill sachs lesion or a reverse hill sachs uh, lesion if there have been dislocation events. But again, typically in the MDI patient, most radiographs will be fairly normal. And that's when MRI can be helpful. Now, um, I think, as we discussed for FAI, you can go either way. I think when you are suspecting a patient with MDI, an MRA is superior, only because it gives you a better idea of the capsular volume when you get the MRA, because of course, you're filling up the glenohumeral joint. With a dye, and so you're really getting a good idea of what the entire joint capsule volume is. And um, typically, in MBI patients, you will see an increased amount of volume, especially on the inferior side. So, if you look at the coronal views, you'll see an increased uh, axillary pouch again along that inferior capsule because usually the inferior glenohumeral joints, both anteriorly and posteriorly, are deficient, and therefore you'll see that excess volume on the coronal view inferiorly. Now, on the axial view, typically you'll see, again, more increased volume with an MRA, both anteriorly and posteriorly, especially as you're making your way down the cuts along the inferior aspect of the glenohumeral joint. That's important just for a a general capsular volume standpoint. And then again, an MRI is crucial to look at the patient that might have some generalized laxity might have some subluxation events, but was doing just fine in sport until, again, they began overtraining or something suddenly changed. They're unable to compensate. And now they have something that you need to look for, whether it's a slap tear, whether it's a posterior labrum tear, anterior labral tear. And sometimes these things will be subtle. It'll just be a small little tear. It'll just be a little bit of bony edema in the glenoid, but that's enough to tip you off that, hey, this is a shoulder that was doing fine. Yes, had some laxity, maybe had some issues with some dynamic stabilizers, but now has sort of fallen out of the general cycle and circle of normal function because of a small injury that has now compromised your ability to compensate and use their shoulder.
0: Great information about diagnosis of MDI, the test, and why you do the different exams. Great stuff, Dr. Bitzer. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.